0: In this final episode of our Advent series, theologian and author Kelly Capic and Trinity Forum president Cherie Harder discuss how we can find joy and relief in our incarnational limits and use them to foster greater freedom and spiritual growth as well as deeper community.
1: And part of what you start to see is some of the good of our limits is that it is actually what fosters relationships with God, with others, even with the earth. And that kind of healthy, interdependence, not with God, but healthy dependence with all these other realities, God, neighbor, and earth, that's actually the stuff of life. That's actually where the good stuff is. And so our limits are not a bad thing. They're what cultivate these relationships.
0: This is an edited version of our online conversation from December 9th of this year, you can find the full video of that conversation on our website at ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Sheree Harder.
2: The topic we're going to consider today, the purpose and blessings of limits, seemed an appropriate one in Advent as we anticipate the incarnation when God himself took on human limitations for the sake of relationship with finite and frail creatures. But it might also seem a surprising and counterintuitive idea. For a while to be human is to be subject to limitations, we all seem to yearn for exactly the opposite. A quick Google search will reveal that the appeal of no limits is significant enough to serve as the title for a movie, a sportswear company, as well as quite a few foundations, nonprofits, and athletic organizations. And even more so, many billions are invested in finding ways of forever extending our productive capacity so that we can do more, achieve more and demonstrate ever greater impact, functioning like finely tuned machines, relentless and untiring, always maximizing our output, eliminating inefficiencies, imposing our agendas at scale. Our guest today offers a very different vision. In his new work, You're Only Human, He argues that limitations are, in his words, a gift from God and therefore good. And in better understanding and embracing our creaturely finitude, our lives can actually become more expansive and full of love, friendship, joy, and creative interdependence. It's a fascinating paradox, a hopeful prospect, and even a huge relief in an anxious and addled time. And there are a few that have grappled with a topic with the theological expertise, much less the energy and enthusiasm than our guest today, Kelly Capick. Kelly is a professor of theological studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where he's taught for more than two decades, as well as serving on the board of of editorial consultants for the Journal of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care. And he's also served as a contributing editor for Cultural Encounters, a journal for the theology of culture. He is the award-winning author, co-author, or editor of more than 15 books, including Embodied Hope, which won Christianity Today's Book of the Year Award in Theology and Ethics, The God Who Gives, The Devoted Life, Becoming Whole, and of course, his most recent book, You're Only Human, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Kelly, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's it's, it's fun to be with you. I like the Christmas tree in the back. We're ready to go.
2: It's, it's great to have you here, Kelly. Thanks. So I have to ask all of us at various points have had to confront our own limits <laughs> and our own finitude. But whenever this happens, whether we first realize them, whether it's due to exhaustion or anxiety or old age, or just discovering that someone else is bigger, smarter, stronger, better, faster, whatever it is, rarely is the discovery a pleasant one <laughs> or a joyful one. Yeah. You have argued that our limits are actually good news, reflective of divine design, and you've called it ultimately good for us, both individually and communally. So what do you see as the blessings of limitations?
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fantastic question. And the reality is we, we kind of all know about this reality that we're not God. If, If we ask, are you God? we all say, no, of course not. But when you look at kind of this unrealistic, unrelenting kind of endless expectations we have, that's where we run into trouble. And so I'm really interested in why is it that, that the way God made us with our limits is a good thing. And part of, I mean, finitude, we've thrown that word around, but it's kind of a newer word for some people, even though it's old, it just means limits in space, time, knowledge, and power. And the reality is we can only be a place. We can only do so much. We can only know so much. So how is it that that is part of the good way that God made us? It's not actually a result of, of this, of the fall or sin. And so I I'm interested in kind of trying to help us think through that a little bit.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and so what have you sort of encountered or discovered as the blessings that attend the, that finitude and frailty?
1: Yeah, it's, the simplest way to put it is love <laughs> because the the reality is we are when we're not coming to terms with the dynamics of our limits efficiency and productivity become our highest goods yeah. and love is kind of counter to efficiency and productivity all the time i mean i love efficiency and productivity these are these are serious values for me but you can see when they become the highest values, I tend to get isolated. Uh, It tends to undermine community. It tends to undermine the common good. And part of what you start to see is some of the good of our limits is that it is actually what fosters relationships with God, with others, even with the earth. And that kind of healthy interdependence, not with God, but healthy dependence with all these other realities, God, neighbor, and earth, that's actually the stuff of life. That's actually where the good stuff is. And so our limits are not a bad thing. They're what cultivate these relationships.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating. So I want to dig into both love, but also efficiency. And, yeah. and also ask just sort of how, how you distinguish both in the book and and you know more broadly between you know, a healthy or even holy respect or reverence for, for limitation. And perhaps just getting a little bit too comfortable with stasis or stagnation or not pushing ourselves in that often there could be really a temptation to call a certain amount of sloth or um, self-indulgence as reference for limits.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating thing because it depends on who you are and what season of life you're in. The reality, to be perfectly honest with you, is most listeners who are tuning in to The Trinity Forum on a Friday afternoon are probably realistically not people who struggled the most with sloth. They tend to be driven people. I could be wrong, these are stereotypes. But interestingly- We're a hardworking
2: crew, Kelly. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah.
1: So, I mean, interestingly enough, I do, I feel the same thing. And I, I would say what I've discovered is I actually think it's the same coin where on one side is kind of this endless pursuit of productivity and not recognizing our limits and the opposite side of the of of the coin is sloth and actually i think a lot of us struggle with both things which is why it's complicated so you find a lot of us who are driven will just go 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 and and then what happens is we turn to media social media binge watching netflix etc and it's kind of when we talk about these things, it's interesting to me how often social media is to blame, Netflix is to blame. And I I I've kind of stopped thinking that. And I think rather than blaming social media and net and binge watching shows, the more interesting question is why do so many of us do it? And it, it it's an indirect way of getting to your question because I actually think we we turn to those things because they're basically socially accepted ways to numb ourselves about the endless demands. So in other words, a lot of us who are driven really hard all of a sudden find ourselves jumping into what might be sloth, but it's almost a self-protection kind of thing. And so even high schoolers, it's you know so frustrating for parents, but if you can, this is not an excuse, but if you can help understand that teenager is often trying to avoid the endless suffocating demands so playing the video game is in a way of escape so actually I, I think that sloth and the overwork are two sides of the same coin and and the short answer i would say to figure out how to navigate it is you need community because i don't think we're the best judges of these things we either think we're letting ourselves off too easily or we're pushing ourselves too hard so i really do think friends people that love you and know you have to speak into that because we don't just tend to struggle with one of them. We tend to struggle with both of them.
2: Yeah. yeah, That is a fascinating point. It, it sort of reminds me, there is a quote I found from Wendell Berry. I'm going to read it. He's like, it's easy for me to imagine that the next division of the world will be between people who want to live as creatures and people who want to live as machines. Mm. You know, And as you were talking about, kind of like, as we sort of seek to numb ourselves, there's a certain... Extent to which we choose some of this. You know, we we choose both to take on the extraordinary burdens, but then also numb out with social media, as opposed to just say go to bed. Yeah. You know, th- there's there's an appeal to some of this. And as a theologian, sort of curious, why do we long to live as machines? Yeah. <laughs>
1: There, well, it, it is fascinating. Obviously, that's such a great but extended kind of question. And there's all kinds of this historical and theological things. I mean, part of it is when when people are more connected to the land and to physical labor, some of these realities just come a little bit easier. But when But when kind of what we compare ourselves to is not a horse, but an iPhone, an iPhone just needs to be plugged in for half an hour. It can go a lot longer, right? It's just kind of endless. So I do think, you know, it, this kind of technological, it, one author argues the more interconnected we've become, the more life feels accelerated.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: and so there is this kind of, uh, everything feels faster. There's some fascinating studies in terms of, we all, by and large, a lot of us think we're working more than people worked 30, 40, 50 years ago. But what's interesting is there's some recent studies that have actually showed that's probably not true. When you actually have people do the, the best way of keeping track, it's not true. But the difference is we're never done with work. It's kind of always with us. And so what happens is now we we create all these escapes throughout the day but that means you could be at the soccer game with your kid and your phone's buzzing and you have work. So you're never done, even if you're not actually necessarily working more, it just gets spread out. So that that's an example of some of the challenge there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was interesting reading your book. I mean, your, your background is as a theologian, but you included quite a fairly extensive history on clocks, which I wasn't necessarily expecting in your work. And, you know, often our, our instinct is like, we must have a time management problem, right? Uh, You know, we, we are, we're numbing ourselves with social media, we're clocking out, we're, we're getting distracted, whatever it is. You've actually argued though, that the problem is not a time management problem. You've claimed it's a theological problem. Yeah. Now, what's the theological problem behind our inability to manage our time well?
1: Yeah, that's great. It, it is this kind of relationship to time. When you think about you know, all these words we use when we greet people, like, how are you doing? And I'll say, well, I'm just so busy. But think about the language we use, like, I'm buried, I'm crushed, I'm yeah. overwhelmed, I'm stretched all of those, it's actually physical. So many of those are physical. And and so there's this interesting discussion about our relationship to time and to the clock that's that's kind of growing. And I, I didn't plan on researching clocks, as you mentioned, and it just became super interesting to kind of spend full time for six weeks or so, just diving into the history of clocks because the our relationship to the clock and the clock is a later invention, Uh, does kind of affect things it starts to where i mean you always had clocks you had like sundials those kind of things but all of a sudden when you move from our hands to uh, you know days to and minutes and seconds and now we carry it on our bodies there is this sense of ever pushing more and more to get more done because because we tend to think of clocks now as about uh, something, even think about the term managing time, like what in the world is that? That's a crazy idea. Where did we start to think about that? Time is just this reality. It's a, It's a. that's a larger conversation, but time is something that happens. And so one of the questions is how do we relate to time? And a lot of the scholarship will tell you there's a, there's what they will call a difference between contextual and non-contextual view of time. And let me just mention it real fast because those of us in the West live in a kind of this non-contextual view of time what that means is tonight it could be friday night and you could go into your kitchen it can be 11 o'clock at night and you open up your laptop you turn on the lights the lights are on your laptop's buzzing at you and you see emails and you think i have an hour of work to do so i'm going to do it that's non-contextual because it's not taking into account your body chemistry (laughs) your blood sugar levels it's not taken into account There may be a baby crying in the next room. It's not taken into account, you know, it's dark outside. Whereas for most of the history of the world and for much of the world to this day, they live in what we call contextual time. So when it's dark, that affects our body chemistry. And I just think it's a fascinating thing where stuff like the, the wonderful blessing of electricity has changed our expectations about how much should get done and changed our relationship to time. So we do have, and the last thing I would just say on this is innovation, as wonderful as it is, part of what they've shown again and again, whether it's a vacuum or a washing machine, is all of these quote unquote time-saving devices, all that happens fairly quickly is increased expectations. And so we end up, that's why after we get these things, you know, the iPhone was going to save us time and now we feel busier. The Washington, you know, it's just one of those things. And I, I love the innovations, but we have to understand there's a bit of a, a cost there.
2: Yeah. You know, one thing I was curious about in reading your book, one of the things we do with the Trinity Forum is we try to provide space for leaders to grapple with the big questions of life in the context of faith. And most significant professional accomplishments are actually built around exceeding limits in, mm. in some way, you know, there's structural incentives around constant improvement. There's six sigma management techniques to eliminate error and yeah. virtually, you know, certainly any medical or technological breakthrough is doing something new, surpassing what we had assumed previously yeah. uh, was a limit. And, and we're pursuing those goals, you know, inevitably requires, Focus, efficiency, sustained effort—you know—and and drive. So, what counsel would you give to leaders who are who are driven to achieve or are captivated by a problem that they believe they can solve? What, what does it look like for a leader yeah. to embrace limits?
1: That's a that's a great question because I can imagine someone hearing, especially if they haven't read the book, you thinking. What what is this guy talking about? I mean, if you're an athlete and someone tells you embrace your limits, that's a terrible thing to say, right? You're never gonna get faster. You're never gonna get stronger. You're never gonna get better. And you can, you know, if you're gonna get better at math or engineering or anything, we, we do constantly push against our limits. And I'm not naive. I'm fully aware of that. And that's part of the goodness of growth, right? So what we have to wrestle with is, In in some ways, when I'm talking about limits, I'm just talking about what it means to be a particular creature, with particular strengths and weaknesses and trying to figure that out. And so we do push ourselves and, and you want the doctor who studied normally you want the doctor who studied more than the doctor who didn't right. So those are (laughs) those aren't aren't bad things. Mm -hmm. Um, part of what we have to ask, it gets again to the community. What does this look like? And one of the things I would ask among leaders is as you encourage yourself and others to grow, is this growth the only thing you're thinking about because we're holistic creatures. So if you're so focused in one particular area that all of these other things are falling apart, this becomes a massive problem. Right. So we, you, you have to think it's kind of like, you you do have companies where someone will devote 14 hours a day to you, but in three years they're gone. Right. So trying to think through this, even in the book, when there's a section talking about stress and anxiety and the differences and stress itself, stress is a good gift from God. We, you know, where if you hear a lion roar, you can run faster, right? If you're going through an alley at night, you're a little more attentive. There are these things that, you know, even physically we react. Stress is a good gift. The problem is when you take something that's meant to be episodic and make it a lifestyle. And so for leaders, I would encourage them to think, how do you help create rhythms and seasons for your, for your team that honor both seasons of pushing and of rest? Farmers have to work super hard at different times in harvest. But then they don't at other times. It's a different pattern. And the problem is now we just live constantly like it's harvest and it, and, it, and we can feel it. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, speaking of rest and needing it, you drew a, a parallel or a connection that I thought was interesting between rest and rich relationship. Mm. How is it that rest and you know basically prioritizing that? enables us to have deeper relationships or to love better.
1: Let me take it in a slightly different way. I mean, rest is learning to be present. There is a sense in that. So, we could talk about sleep, you know, even in light of some of the things we said earlier and I think there's this really beautiful theology of sleep we could talk about where the reason we sleep is because God doesn't, right? <laughs> and that's that is this ultimate rest of when you're when you're in in war you don't sleep unless you have someone watching over you, right? And then it's safe. Well, Christians sleep because God never does. There's there's something actually deeply important about the idea of sleep. There There is this idea of God making us in this one in seven pattern. Abram Heschel, this great Jewish author, had written this simple small book called The Sabbath on the beauty of the Sabbath, or this one in seven pattern that, that the, the, the Hebrew Bible gives this cathedral in terms of time where we're made to work and to rest. Um, And to get to your particular question, I actually think it's related to the biblical idea of the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. The fear of the Lord is not, not fundamentally about being scared of God that can show up occasionally in scripture, but fundamentally the fear of the Lord is just living in recognition of God's presence and provision, right? That's why it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. And, It's interesting in our day, I think we find being present, which is related to rest, being present so difficult, because we're always thinking of the next thing or things we didn't do. And, you know, think about these Christmas parties we're going to, how often are you fully present there to the person you're talking about? Are we thinking about the next thing? And I think it's, there's something Christians can offer to this conversation where actually by cultivating a slowness and learning to recognize God's presence and provision, to be present with God, amazingly, allow it, it helps you to learn to be more present with other people. But you don't tend to get that without times of quiet and and solitude. That doesn't have to be days and hours and hours. But I do think there's something countercultural to Christians saying and other people saying slow down. And you can, I mean, the mindfulness movement, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sympathetic because they can feel You don't, even, whether you're a Christian or not, you can just feel we're not being present with people. We need to slow down. We need to be present.
2: Right. You know, that reminds me of something you said in your, your book that I thought was quite, quite fascinating. You know, many of our inherent limits are fairly obvious to us. Like, Mm. you know, we know about time, you know, our bodily limits are, you know, very vivid to us, but one of the limitations that you talked about is that of our own self-knowledge, which I thought was quite interesting. And that you've argued that paradoxically knowledge of our own, of our own identity or or kind of even, uh, or, or a gestation of it, like living into our gifts, growth is often something that we cannot do entirely for ourselves, that we, Mm. we know ourselves better in community. And it's often others that first see, and then later call forth who we were made to be. And I'd love for you to talk about this a little bit more and how, you know, how our own limitations and finitude actually can be related to our own growth and flourishing and identity.
1: Yes, thank you for asking. It's, you know, it's funny, it's one of these things where we're pretty comfortable with the idea, whether or not we practice it, that other people can help us see our blind spots, right? (laughs) This is part of the goodness of diversity, where we're saying we need to cultivate diversity in our communities and our workplaces and our and our churches, because they help us see blind spots, and that's true. And we need to celebrate and cultivate that. But I think it's actually the similar principle. Not just other people help us see our blind spots or the the negative parts, but they also help us see gifts that we have that we don't recognize. And I and I think that surprises people because they think, no, 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 you know what you're good at. But actually, often our gifts are what it's not that you don't have to work at them, but they come more naturally. And because they come more naturally, one of the great challenges is we assume everybody else has it. We just think that's part of being human, right? Which is, makes us judgmental of others and those kind of things. So it actually can be very helpful to have other, other people speak into our lives and say, Hey, I really see this in you. I can't believe that, you know, when you walk up into a group, just so you know, everyone kind of relaxes. You have the gift of hospitality. And I don't know if you realize that or, or, you know, you, you look at a problem in a different way than the rest of us. And it's so good having you in meetings because you see things the rest of us don't. There's something about speaking that into other people's lives. That's, that's a tremendous gift and can bring some confidence. Not We're so worried about making people arrogant. But actually, it's so affirming, right? There's something beautiful, in there, there, especially with all this pressure in our culture. Know yourself, be yourself. Mm-hmm. The internal world is a lot more complicated than that. So we need ourselves and others to navigate this.
2: Yeah. yeah as you conclude your book, you give several different suggestions or guidelines for what you call living faithfully with infinitude. Mm-hmm. And and they're excellent, but I wanted to ask you about one in particular, which was Lament and Gratitude. Mm. And you encouraged your readers to practice both simultaneously rather than picking between the two of them. And so I wanted to ask you what lament and gratitude have to do with living faithfully with infinitude and, and better loving others.
1: I think as Christians, we are constantly tempted to lie. (laughs) <laughs> I think we're constantly tempted to lie primarily about two things. One is how hard or complicated things are. We're tempted to just make it it's all great and and plastic or it's all terrible whatever. We make we we're tempted to lie about how things are and we're tempted to lie about how good God is. And part of being a creature, part of being finite is recognizing these limits of knowledge and all of this kind of stuff. But what this looks like in a healthy kind of way is learning to cultivate this sense of when you see hard things, you talk to God about them. You lament them because it is hard and, or, or, or bad. Sometimes it's just wrong, it's injustice. And you need to lament it and not act just because God is sovereign that what you're seeing is a good thing. Uh, but at the same time, cultivating this sense of gratitude for God's provision and his kindness. And you you probably know in, in psychology and in the positive psych movement that, you know, where they've responded historically to psychology was good for showing things that are bad, but not that are good. Mm-hmm. And anyways, what you know, Bob M- Emmons, Robert Emmons at UC Davis was one of the leaders on gratitude studies. And they've just shown, and this shouldn't surprise us as Christians, cultivating a sense of gratitude, even making a gratitude journal of, you know, Five to ten things every day for a month has all these physiological benefits. <laughs> People tend to sleep a little better. Their blood pressure goes down. It's all this kind of thing. So, but I think we choose though between those, and that's where we get into trouble. You know, it's kind of like my wife is thankful for her job and way, you know, all these things she gets to do and uh, her tremendous gifts and responsibilities, and so she's thankful. But there's still so much sexism in our world. And she should be able to lament that. And when it affects her and say the good things, she doesn't have to pick between those. And that's kind of what I'm trying to argue for. That is a way of recognizing our creaturely finitude Mm -hmm. is we don't solve it. We don't know it all, but we do go to the one who does.
2: That's great. Finally, as promised Kelly, the last word is yours.
1: (laughs) Thank you. This has been a delight to be with you all. So thanks for, for taking the time. Yeah, I think the last word I'd like to encourage us with is a simple reminder that the goal of the Christian life is not to be superhuman. The goal of the Christian life is just to be truly human. The goal that we're about is not something bigger, greater, grander. The God of creation loves what he made and doesn't love the sin that distorts it. But he he doesn't hate our bodies. He doesn't hate the earth. The goal of the Christian life is that we might become truly and fully human lovers of God, lovers of neighbor and lovers of the earth. And so I think it's actually in our day, discipleship needs to be framed in terms of this vision of being truly humane in an inhumane world. So I, I hope that's worth thinking about.
2: Kelly, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you again to each of you for joining us. Have a very happy Advent.
0: Thank you for listening to our final episode in our series on Waiting with Wisdom. Be sure to subscribe to the Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos from our past events.